we are in week three of a series that we're calling Selfies. It is a journey through the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church there at Corinth. Um, This is, again, week three. We kicked off two weeks ago with the first uh, message from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul talks to us about the God of comfort. Paul greets these brothers and sisters in the letter, and he takes that opportunity there in the greeting to remind us that God is with us in our troubles, that God comforts us in our troubles, and then God gives us the ability and the call to comfort others with the same comfort that we have received. In the last week, we looked at uh, the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, where Paul lifts up this question of what true uh, biblical leadership looks like. Paul's life and his ministry was in sharp contrast to the other super apostles who had come to the city of Corinth. And Paul gave us the opportunity through last week's message to ask the question, what kind of biblical leaders do we want to be and what kind of leaders do we want to follow? And I hope that if you have not already listened to those messages, if you missed any of them, you know you can get it on our podcast or on our live stream that's stored there on Facebook as well. And today, we get the opportunity in week three of our series called Selfies to take a deeper look at the culture there in the city of Corinth. And we don't just want to do it for the sake of just just knowing more about their culture. I believe that when we learn more about the culture of Corinth, we'll have the opportunity to better understand the foundation of all Paul's teaching and the way he lived his life among the believers there. There was one foundational reality, one event, one truth, one idea even that that shaped Paul's life and his ministry. And I want us to look at that together today. And so if you have your Bibles, can you open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse number 11. We're going to read there together. Here's what God's word says. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than that what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's look together again at verses 14 and 15 as they'll make up the core of our message today. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful to have this time to be together. Lord, we need your presence to continue to be with us and bless us in this room, to open our minds, our hearts, our ears to hear from you today. So God, I pray for every brother and sister in this room, 
regardless of what they experienced this week, regardless of the burdens that they brought into this room, that you would allow them the opportunity to lay them down, that you would be about the work of comforting, comforting us in this moment, that we might hear from you in a way that would transform our lives. So God, would you give me clarity in explaining your word and teaching your word, but ultimately I know it will be up to you to speak to your children. So have your way in this place, O oh God. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The city of Corinth was a prosperous port city in Greece. It was a commercial hub and a cultural crossroad nestled there between the Aegean Sea on the northeast side and the Mediterranean Sea on the south side. In the year 146 B.C., the Roman army destroyed the city of Corinth, and it laid in ruins for about 100 years. 100 years later, in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar himself had this city of Corinth rebuilt and had it branded as a Roman colony. Once this city became rebuilt, the population grew quickly by those who saw this city, this new city, as a chance for social and economic advancement. Both free men and slaves came to this city, believing that they could use this, the newness of this city to grow themselves and move up the socioeconomic ladder. Corinth became increasingly diverse, incredibly diverse. It was ethnically diverse, it was economically diverse, and it was religiously diverse. Religious pluralism was the name of the game. People would take a bit of any religion that they knew about and try to do, to syncretize it into something that they could practice. Corinth, as many of you will know, became notorious for its sexual practices. And while many scholars now challenge the wildest reports that we've heard about Corinth, the stories of the temple dedicated to the goddess Aphrodite, those stories that said sailors would come into the city and immediately ascend a thousand step, steps up to the Acrocorinth and go into this, this uh, sexual hut where thousands of prostitutes were there waiting for them. Scholars now challenge the, the truthfulness of all that. They all, scholars tell us that perhaps those reports were true for the old Corinth, but by the time Paul reached the city, that was not true of the city anymore. Scholars also tell us that it was probably, it was physically impossible for this small temple to accommodate thousands of people. Probably was hard to even get 100 people into that temple. So while the rumors of sexual exploits in Corinth have probably been overstated, there's no doubt that the city of Corinth suffered most of the vices, the sexual vices that other large cities of the day suffered. Corinth had everything that people wanted, and so there was a mad dash to get to the city of Corinth. This rush turned Corinth into a very competitive city. It seemed like everyone was trying to get there so they could make it. Think about New York today, Los Angeles, Las Vegas, Miami. Corinth had reestablished itself as a destination, and the destination was there for people who were looking for the good life. I want us to imagine today and perhaps think about many of our own lives in this room. Many of you have grown up in small town USA, greater Minnesota, and you saw making it to the Twin Cities as making it. Perhaps you grew up in a small town in greater Minnesota, some small town in Iowa, Wisconsin, or the Dakotas. 
And think about the ways in which many people came to the Twin Cities and still come to the Twin Cities because it is a bit flashier. Because it is faster. It's brighter. Maybe even considered sexier. More fun. Think of how people can come to a place like the Twin Cities and recreate themselves. No matter who you were back home, no matter what you had back home, if you can just make it to the city, you can become an entirely different person. And if that's true of us here in the Twin Cities, imagine how true it was in Paul's day. Many of the Corinthians did just that. They did a deep dive into what we call today the grind so that they could experience the good life. And that kind of grind gave way to rampant materialism, being overly status conscious, being superficial, being obsessed with appearance, and they became fixated on making it, earning a name for themselves, and looking like a success at all costs. Corinth could be titled the city of upward mobility, the city of striving, the city of climbing the social and economic ladder. And that's why when Paul reached the city, he found a city that struggled with false teachers and super apostles, those folks who looked successful, those folks who talked a good game, those shiny suit preachers, they, they preached the gospel that had no substance to it, but was dominated by signs and wonders and extravagant displays. Their ministry looked like the greatest show on earth. But Paul had been called by God to come to live, to minister, and to suffer as an apostle of a crucified Christ. And so think how drastic of a contrast there was between the cultural message of the day and the message that Paul came proclaiming. The Corinthian culture was all about being braggadocious, but Paul's life and ministry was one of humility. The Corinthian culture was one of personal striving and me before we, but Paul's life and ministry was about sacrificial service. The Corinthian culture was about victory at all costs. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Don't act like y'all don't know the song. <laughs> Paul's life and ministry was about suffering. The Corinthian culture was about fame and status. Paul's life and ministry was about obscurity. The Corinthian culture was about doing my own thing. Paul's life and ministry was about obedience, even unto death. Corinthian culture, upward mobility. Paul's life and ministry, downward mobility for the cause of Christ. It was the good life versus the cross life. The Corinthian people were busy serving themselves, propping up their own thin accomplishments. And Paul came to them saying what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, for Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. While the people were busy working to convince the world that they were living their best lives, shining and bling-blinging and working on their personal brand, Paul came brandishing a very different message centered on 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this hope, this treasure in jars of clay to show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, 
but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our bodies. Paul did not come with a sexy, attractive message. And as such, his message and his life became an affront to the Corinthians. It was an absolute challenge to the Corinthian way. And what we witness here in Corinth and what I believe we are witnessing in our day as well is a serious clash between two vastly different worldviews. It's the good life versus the cross life. The Corinthians, one writer said, the Corinthians had become more Corinthian than Christian. They had more Corinth in them than Christ. And so Paul goes to great lengths to help them see that their Corinthianness I know that's not a word. He helps them to see that it was empty. And he calls them towards an alternative through the gospel of Jesus. I believe Paul calls them to what I've been calling today the cross life. But many writers call it the cruciform life. Paul was calling them to a life that was shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross-shaped life, the, the, the cross life, the cruciform life is a life that is centered on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says that his worldview, his orientation, his life was different because of the reality of the cross. Because he believed that God loved us so much that he sent his son to redeem us. And when Paul came to know and believe the cross... Paul's life was confronted, he was informed, and he was changed forever. The cross did a few things in Paul's life. First, it convinced him of a divine love that salvation was for all. In verse 14 of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here's what Paul heard about. For Christ, uh, what Paul says to them, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. Paul came into contact with a love that was so vast, so strong, that God held nothing back, including the life of his very son. So Paul heard of that divine love, and it convinced him that his life needed to be different. Paul also heard of the gospel, and it freed him from the need to impress people or win approval from people. Verse 11b through verse 12 says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again. Paul says, I love you, but I can't waste much more time getting you to like me. Paul heard of the gospel, and the cross took root in Paul's life. It refocused his passions. He says in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade people. Previously, Paul's life had not been so focused. But when he came to know the gospel and it took root in his life, it refocused all of his passions. His very life purpose was to convince people to follow Jesus. There was nothing more important in his life than helping to persuade others to follow Jesus. Paul could not simply go along with the culture of the day because his entire life had been changed by the love of Jesus. Paul lived a cross-shaped life. Paul calls us 
today to the very same cross-shaped life. And the question I want to spend the rest of our time wrestling with today is, what is cruciform living for us? What does it look like for us to live cross-shaped lives? Cruciform living is a slow journey of learning to see and experience everything in light of the cross. Cruciform living calls us to see ourselves different, differently, see our relationships to our loved ones differently, to see our relationships to strangers differently, to see our work and our vocation differently, to see our finances differently, to see our successes and our failures differently. Cruciform living even changes how we look at death. Cruciform living, I believe, is at least three things that I want to highlight, and then we're going to wrap up our time today. Cruciform living is first, receiving the love of Christ. You can't be shaped by the love of the cross if you don't receive the love of Christ. So here's a few comments. Receiving the love of Christ means that the cross, the message of the cross, reaches our hearts and our minds. And as it does, we are mysteriously but unmistakably changed as we accept the reality that Christ died for all. As we believe that Christ loved us enough to die for us, we are, as Paul said, we are compelled. We are forced forward because of the love of God. And here's what I know for sure, friends, that we will not receive the love of Christ as long as it remains an idea. But the cross of Jesus is not an idea. It's an actual historical event that Christ came, died, was resurrected, and is sitting today on the right hand of the Father. That is not just an idea. We have to see it as an event, a reality, if it ever is to actually impact our lives. And so what does it mean for you to actually receive the truth that the God of all creation stepped out of eternity into history and did so out of love? Paul says it compels us. It pushes us forward. It moves us out of a state of indifference. It moves us out of a place of being ruled by our prejudices and our fears. It moves us out of our comforts. The cross shows us that God loves us and it frees us from needing to perform for others. The cross purifies the motivations from which we operate. Have you ever seen someone who does the right things, but they're doing it so someone will love them, approve of them, respect them? Cruciform living says we love because Christ loved us. That becomes the motivation for everything that we do. And out of God's love for us, we are then able to love others. And so the first aspect of cruciform living is simply this, receiving the love of Christ. And so I have a simple question for you today. Do you believe that God loves you? Have you ever actually sat and wrestled with the reality that God loves you? Not in some sort of abstract blanket way, oh, God loves me because God loves everybody, and I guess that covers me. But what does it mean for you and your story and your struggles to realize that God loves you? You'll never be the same. 
It will transform you when you realize that the God of all creation loves you with an everlasting love. So cruciform living begins with receiving the love of Christ. As we receive the love of Christ, we then begin to prioritize the cause of Christ. It's possible for any of us to come to some sense that Jesus loves us and then simply go back to the lives we were living before. You can hear me saying today, as I say every single week, God loves you with an everlasting love. You might hear that song from your childhood, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And that's cool, and that's sweet. And we get to 1.30 this afternoon, and we're right back to the lives we were living before. But as we more and more train ourselves to remember and rehearse over our lives that the God of all comfort loves us with an everlasting love, Over time, something strange happens. Our affections begin to take on less of a priority. And the affections of Jesus become elevated in our lives. We begin to prioritize the cause of Christ. The things that love us, that that we love right now and that dominate our lives, they take on less significance as the love of Christ takes greater root in our lives. Right now, all of you are dominated by some affection. There's something that owns your affections right now. You're not just going about your life happy-go-lucky, just doing stuff as it comes to you. There are things in your life right now that you love. And that's how you spend your time, your money, your affection, your energy, That's what dominates your life. And I believe as we grasp more and more the love of Jesus, the things that Jesus loves becomes the things that we love more and more. We prioritize the love of Christ. And when we have are living this cruciform life, here's what happens. There are a series of come to Jesus meetings between your faith and your calendar your faith in your wallet, your faith in your children, your faith in your loved ones. We don't simply receive the love of Christ and then go back to the way we were before. Everything in cruciform living is seen now through the cross. What kind of parent do I want to be because of the reality that the God of all creation loved me and died for me and has given me eternal life? What do I want to Make sure I'm teaching my kids. Yes, I'll teach them to balance a checkbook. Yes, I'll teach them to be respectful. But don't I have a responsibility to teach them something about this God as well? Everything in our life, as we become more and more impacted by this cruciform living, becomes impacted as well. And so the question for you today is, what is it that's dominating the landscape of your life right now? What is it? that you think about when you wake up first thing in the morning? What does it mean? Where might the Holy Spirit be prompting you to prioritize some spiritual things over some familiar things? Cruciform living is receiving the love of Christ. It's then learning to prioritize the cause of Christ. 
And finally today, cruciform living is demonstrating the life of Christ. Friends, here's what I know for certain. What matters in your heart ultimately begins to work itself out into your hands and your feet. What matters in your heart will ultimately begin to flow out of your mouth. So cruciform living says the cross reshapes everything about us, not just what we think, not just what we love, but also what we do. As we receive the love of Christ, as we begin to prioritize the cause of Christ, we can be assured that the life of Christ will also be reflected in us. Cruciform Living says that more and more we are learning to love like Jesus and live like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, Cruciform Living is not some unreachable bar, not some requirement of perfection for the super saints in the building, Cruciform living is an open invitation to day by day receive the love of God ourselves, to grow in affection for the things that God loves, and to follow Jesus into the world, demonstrating the life of Christ and the love of Christ wherever you find yourself. So if you're a teacher this morning, what does it mean for you to demonstrate the love of Christ in those hallways? If you are working in corporate America, what does it mean to demonstrate the love of Christ in a boardroom? If you are driving a city bus or picking up trash on the side of the street or are working in a convenience store, wherever you find yourself, there is a call to demonstrate the love of Christ right where you are. Many centuries ago, on the south coast of China, High up on a hill, a group of settlers built a, 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 an enormous cathedra- a cathedral hoping that it would weather the time and be something that would bless this community over time. They placed there upon the front wall of this cathedral a large bronze cross set high on that hill and it overlooked a harbor. But a few years later, a tycoon came through and it destroyed the entire cathedral It seemed as if God's hand had come through and simply wiped out the hard work of these people. The only thing that survived that tycoon of that cathedral was a large bronze cross. Centuries passed, and a group of sailors came and had their ship. It was wrecked there in that same harbor, and one of the survivors was there in the harbor out a ways from from the shore, struggling to find his way. He did not know where land was. He did not know if he was going to make it. He was simply holding on to what he had there in the shipwreck. And way out in the distance, he saw something up on a hill in the shape of a cross. And he realized that that was a cross on a hill. That's where he was supposed to be headed. And this brother held on to what he had, and he kept his eyes on that cross. He kicked as hard as he could. Water was pushing him from side to side. He was being beat up by the waves, but he held on to what he had. He kicked as hard as he could, and he kept his eyes focused on the cross. After two days of holding on, this brother finally made it to the shore. One day he would write a song about this splendid adventure he was on. He says, in the cross of Christ, I glory. 
towering over the wrecks of time. All the light of sacred story gathers round this cross sublime. When the woes of life overtake me, hope deceives and fears annoy. Never shall the cross forsake me. It glows with peace and joy. Brothers and sisters, no matter what you are going through in your life, I want to encourage you today. Fix your eyes on the cross. It is the cross of Jesus that saves us. And it is the cross of Jesus that is our hope. Let's pray. Father, there is nothing as beautiful as the beauty of the cross. Knowing, God, that you have loved us and you spared no cost for our salvation. Father, I pray for every person in this room, wherever they are in their walk with you, Lord, that you would guide them, that you would help them to look with new eyes towards the cross. Lord, we need you. We need you, Lord Jesus. So I pray, God, that not one aspect of our lives would not be impacted by your power. God, I pray for marriages. God, I pray for finances. Pray for jobs. I pray for those who are estranged from their families. I pray for those who are addicted to all sorts of things, God. God, I pray for those who struggle with unbelief. All of us do in some way, God, but I pray with those who are on the brink of walking away from this great love that you have for them. God, I'm encouraged by the fact that you hold us even when we can't hold ourselves. That your love chases after us. Lord, we need you today. After the songs are over and after the lights have been turned off, God, we need to know that you're with us. So touch every heart and mind in this space today, oh God. That we might know for certain that we are your children. May we leave this place, God, with a new confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. Have mercy on us, oh God. Thank you for loving us. We pray all of these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus. And we say amen.